Hello and welcome to Reality Tourist Podcast. In this podcast, I will interview people about their experiences of psychosis in order to end the taboo, educate people, and basically just help others feel less alone. Hello everyone, welcome to our new episode of Reality Tourists. Uh, today I am joined by Peter. Um, would you like to give yourself a quick introduction to everyone? Hi, Hazel, thanks. I'm Peter Varnum. I can give an introduction kind of as you do professionally. I work with an organization in Australia called Origin that focuses on youth mental health, and I work on the global side of that. Um, but I also have, and more to the point of this con- this conversation, is that I have a lived experience of episodes of psychosis and hospital visits uh, over the last almost 20 years now in the U.S. and actually one time even in, in Kenya when I was there. So I'm American, you can hear from my accent, but living in Europe. Um, I've already forgotten the name of the organization. What was it? What was it again? Sorry, I have brains to die. Origin, uh, Origin, O-R-Y-G-E-N. And it's um, it's been around for a couple of decades in Australia, but we're just kind of the last couple of years starting uh, to, to do things more globally, which is exciting and challenging as well during a pandemic, of course. Yeah, you might have chosen the wrong time to do that. Although right time, depending on how you look at it, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, well, certainly, I mean, mental health is getting more and more attention because of COVID, which is, which is a you know, it's a good thing for the field. It's uh, obviously been a challenging time for everybody. So, so I suppose, um, given that you've lived in multiple countries by the sounds of things, I'm just mm-hmm. sort of curious: have you noticed any sort of difference between the mental health services in these different countries? Yeah, well, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I should say that I am in a place now, both kind of under, in terms of understanding myself, but also financially to, to have a sort of treatment regimen or a prevention regimen, I think is more accurate, that I have been able to sort of cobble together and design. And it's not really based on a system. So I, I have lived in a couple of different countries. Um, most of the episodes that I've gone through have taken place in the U.S. Um, when I was in Kenya, it was I was traveling there and had a had an episode and was hospitalized there, which is a different story that I'm I'm happy to go into. But um, but the the reality for me has been that this the systems of care that are set up haven't haven't really been that useful. And I think unfortunately that's the reality for a lot of people who who deal with mental ill health. And it, what's what's incredibly sad about it to me is that it's not the fault of like individuals who work in those places in fact a lot of the, the like memorable and positive interactions i've had with with carers have been in like hospital settings or certainly like with the, the therapist that i see now remotely but but the systems themselves are just they're just antiquated they're they're clunky they're bureaucratic they're not fit for purpose they're obviously expensive there's a lot more demand than they have the capacity to meet so it's just that that kind of story that we hear about a lot is the same everywhere, and I think I mean, at least that's what I've read is also the case in the in the UK. But I think the bigger thing is that we focus on like well two issues. One is that there's too much like focus on diagnosis, in my view, and sort of the biological causes of mental ill health or the purported biological causes. There's been all over the kind of Twitter sphere of the mental health uh, field lately, this new study that just, or the, I guess uh, it's an analysis of studies that have um, been done, which which once again sort of debunks that chemical imbalance myth, like, oh, you're depressed because there's a chemical imbalance in your in your brain. 
so that's one thing I think there's, you know, too many, too much of, of how do you, especially in the Western world, how, how, what, what is your diagnosis and therefore what should you be prescribed? Um, and, and then the other thing is there's not enough focus on the sort of preventive side. So the regimen that I have now includes talk therapy with this therapist I've been seeing for a number of years. And that's pretty much like the formal, the extent of it formally. It's just, I have, you know, my kind of routines. I have my activities that I do. I have really good relationships and people around me, a support system around me. And I think I know myself really well, which is maybe the biggest thing, not just knowing yourself, but kind of accepting who you are and, and ultimately loving who you are. But the preventive side of it, like we, we don't talk enough about the, um, the importance of communities of people who will be supportive of having that support system around of, of sort of taking care of yourself before you need to and having systems that that incentivize that care because right now it's a lot of like okay we'll wait until you're not you're not sick enough you don't meet the threshold enough to get like specialized care and then you wound up you wind up like having a psychotic break or using drugs or you know having an episode that can be can be quite serious and then you're dealing with like emergency medical technicians you're dealing with police in some cases and that's just it's just it's not not a great way to do it i love it when you get cynical people on here (laughs) (laughs) although with my um, neuroscience and pharmacology background we could have a long debate about the whole medication side of things sure yeah (laughs) what i'll focus on though i think from what you've just said is I fully agree. There is not enough sort of discourse about the preventative side of things. People have to get really ill before they get any sort of help. And that's, that's I mean, apart from anything else, surely preventative would be cheaper and better. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it, the, like case after case, have there, there have been so many studies, so many sort of economic models that have gone out there about the return on investment, they, they do it from a dollar standpoint. Like if you invest $1 into, you know, preventive mental ill health, then it will, it will return anywhere from like four to six. Some, some studies have it even higher than that dollars, you know, in return, which is obviously makes economic sense. There's the kind of, there's a report a few years ago called the return on the individual, which tries to take a bit more of a holistic and not so quantified an approach to what a return on investment looks like. And that point, the point of that is to say, especially for young people, if, if you are preventing mental ill health, severe mental ill health in particular, at the age of whatever, 15 to 24, when people are coming of age, when they're, you know, either finishing school and entering the workforce or getting trained up to enter the workforce, like that has it's such a critical time in somebody's life in terms of how, you know, what doors might open and how your life may unfold in the immediate, that it, it doesn't make any sense not to to focus on that sort of preventive aspect in that in that population and then there's all this this is a whole other kind of topic of conversation but all this talk about you know what skills do you need in this world and the sort of soft skills of empathy and resilience and in the u.s they call them sel social emotional learning skills and you know there's a really important conversation to be had about like yes that stuff is very important and, and emotional intelligence is important but why we need skills that allow it that that necessitate our own resilience like why is it on individuals to to develop the skills that allow them to go through the world because the world is hard when we could be focusing on just like making the world a little bit easier for everybody (laughs) that's um that's a whole other topic of conversation too yeah 
that's a big topic of conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and I might be falling into stereotypes here, but it's, it feels almost strange having an American t- say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it, it's true, I, because especially because you we champion, the, I mean, you see these, like, it's all over social media, of course, but you see the these stories of people who are, you know, the rags to riches, right? And the, the American dream kind of thing, if you work hard, you're going to be successful, which is just just a, totally not true. You'll win capitalism. Yeah, you'll win capitalism. Exactly. Um, and then you also see these, the, or you have the expectation of, especially like entrepreneurs, to just be burning the candle at both ends. Sort of, it's like a survival of the fittest in terms of who can work the most and the hardest and the longest. And it just, it's just not good for, for mental health um, when you're championing these people, you know, who who are exceptions and probably themselves don't have the best mental health either. We should do a lot more of champion of like, you know, good people who have good balance to their lives and who, you know, who have strong relationships with people they care about and stuff like that. Like the, the normal folks among us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, being able to say, oh, I worked 90 hours last week. That's not a brag. <laughs> that, no. that cannot Shouldn't be good be. for you. But yeah, I think I honestly think that capitalism causes a lot of mental health issues. And when I say that, I get mixed responses let's just say yeah i i mean i don't disagree i don't disagree i think that i think there's a you know nobody can predict the future but i think there's a type of the way that capitalism has evolved to where we are right now is certainly not not good for the sort of majority of people's mental health and it's really not like it's not designed to to help the most people it's designed to help a few people who's who like win or get ahead right and um and it's definitely not good for like other challenges that we're facing, like like climate change and yeah, rising inequality, etc. So I don't disagree. I don't. I mean, I, I the, where I, the reason that I I guess where I disagree when when somebody says like I'm anti-capitalist, it's it's usually because there's a lot of cynicism without any solution. Like you have to have something to replace the system with, which I, I don't I don't know the answer to that one either. <laughs> something that's more equitable, yeah. I'm not an economist. Economist? That's not even a word. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think that capitalism can work, but we have ended up in a situation now where we're all essentially just approaching burnout and seeing it almost as a good thing when it can't, can't possibly, a better life Mm. balance, like you said earlier, that is, that is important. And that is what we should be championing, not work as many hours you can and get as big as bank balance as you can and then just sit on it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. And I mean, to be honest, I have done a lot of thinking about what, you know, why I myself have gone through these episodes of psychosis, which, you know, some people call this altered reality syndrome, or basically you're, you're breaking from what is your normal, right? And that has happened to me on a number of occasions. And as I said, four of those have led to, to hospitalizations. And it's really not so different from burnout. I mean, it's not, it's not quite the same. It's not like I'm, I work too hard and then I get burned out and then I get psychotic. That's not really how it goes, but there's something about the disconnect between how I'm spending my time and how I'm thinking about how I'm spending my time and who I really am or or what I really desire and really am after. I think for me, basically my episodes of psychosis have come down to my body like breaking because I'm being so inauthentic to who I actually am. I'm I'm being so untrue to who I actually am. And that sort of like dissonance, just like my body just can't handle it. And so this is the way that it 
it tells me <laughs> that I need to like rethink a few things, which is, it's a bit simplistic, but I think that's pretty much what happens. Yeah. Well, I've heard other people say similar. I mean, it's an extreme response for the body to, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big yes. message. <laughs> it's not, it's not being subtle, is it? It just makes sense. Yeah. So um, in, in your mind, then the sort of life balance and preventative stuff is what you personally believe helps you personally. I said personally too many times then. Yeah. No, it's okay. I, I, I believe that. I also think that there's a, there's something that's maybe even more important. And the reason I'm going to talk about this for a second is that, you know, a lot of the, like, if you search for how to manage your mental health or, you know, you think of, if you've like talked to people about it or some of these like apps that you can do digitally, a lot of it is really, you know, it's about like finding routines and habits, building habits and, and, you know, doing like mindfulness or meditating every day or whatever. And all that is fine. But I think it, I think it, there, it's like band-aid stuff, right? You have to really know who you are and what your your own sort of limits are, your triggers are, why those triggers exist. It's like deep, you know, it's deep work. And so, yeah, I mean, I've been in therapy on and off for like 20 years, and this is by no means the only way to do that work. But for me, it's it's been helpful to have actually the, the therapist I'm currently with, I've been seeing her for like seven years or something. So it's, it's almost eight years now. And it's, it's, um, been really really helpful to kind of like peel back those layers so it's not just okay i i get triggered when such and such thing happens it's like where might that trigger have come from where does it reside like in my body where does it where can i feel it how can i feel it being activated what else is it saying besides just like this situation is it's like there's you know we talk about these kind of core issues and for me one of them is like accepting myself like adequacy am i am i adequate enough can i accept my own me who as who I am. And so if something is threatening that or, or I get triggered by something that's threatening that thing, which is a very core thing for me, then I can feel it like rising up in my body, in my stomach, in my chest. And so if that kind of situation, it could be because like somebody at work has put some pressure on me or, or said something that makes me doubt myself or something and that like triggers that very um, deeply embedded feeling. If that happens multiple times and I don't address it, I don't process it, I don't you know, think about why that might be and sort of work through it myself, then, then that's where the, it's like a, it's like there's, there's only so much space that my body has to handle those things. If that space gets, gets filled, then the bursting comes in the form of, of psychosis. And so, so, you know, it's not just that I like eat pretty healthy and that I exercise regularly. It's like, understanding now like like even almost in real time when things like that are happening like understanding what's what's going on in my body processing it so it's not just sitting in that compartment but i'm actually i'm actually processing it to to where i can kind of release it from that compartment if that makes sense yeah i think i think so it's sort of like a very high level of self-awareness i suppose in a way yeah yeah i mean i i hope so the the other part of it too is like I, I certainly have been uh like a, 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 what is the word like I, this has been a fault of mine and I think a lot of people who have are like I, I'm going to say like sensitive right who are emotionally aware or sensitive they have this thing where it's like an uh, paralysis analysis right and or or you're you're being you're thinking about things too much you're overanalyzing and so on the one hand it is this kind of hyper self awareness on the other hand it's understanding when things aren't about me right which which is much easier said than done but even like 
you know, in the example I gave of, of, a, of a boss who gives me an assignment or gives me feedback about an assignment in a way that that doesn't really sit well with me. It's probably not, I mean, there are some people who are kind of assholes, but it's probably not because the boss is like intentionally trying to rile me up. And so it's not really for me to like work that out with that person. It's not for me to be like, hey, you know, you you said it this way and I don't, it, I didn't take it well. There are situations where that is the case, but sometimes it's not. So I have to know like, okay, I can process this thing that's triggering me for some reason, but I also have to know that it's not really this other person's business or it's nobody's fault or nobody really needs to hear about it. No one cares that much about my own internal processing, except for maybe the audience of this podcast. <laughs> so it's a little bit, it's a little bit like you have to, you know, you have to draw that line for yourself of knowing, um, you know, knowing what to share with whom and, and how often. So you explain this in a, and it's, it's sounding deceptively simple. I imagine that it's not, and that this is actually a ridiculous amount of work, and has probably taken you a long yeah. time to get to this point. That's right, and I—I I mean, I—I I don't know that there's any like quick way to it. But look, I—I I do also believe that the well, two things. One is these sorts of uh, this sort of processing is a is something that I've honed. Like it's it comes more naturally now because I've worked on it for a long time. And the other thing too is. I wouldn't say that this is like the way that everybody should do it necessarily. Like, you know, you have to, you have to know what's going to work for you. And some people who are, I would say very emotionally intelligent and I've, I've you know, talked to them a lot, find this kind of what I'm describing as too, like too much, basically too much navel gazing. It's too much, too deep. It's like not relevant for how they, how they exist in the world. And that's totally fine. So I think the, I think the most important thing for anybody, whether you've had like severe mental ill health or not, is to just really know who you are and be true to that person. And if that person doesn't want to like dig under all these layers and explore like potential possibilities for these triggers and whatever, then then fine. It's just um you gotta be true to who you are. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's fairly good advice, regardless of someone's, you know, mental health status. Not easy. Yeah. Um, especially with the pressures of society and all the things that we feel like we're meant to do and the ways we're meant to act. And yeah, I think we all put on a mask to some degree and it's probably not healthy. And self-acceptance and self-awareness are definitely massively important things. But as I say, really yeah. not easy things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't know. What's helped me now, so I'm in my late 30s and what's helped me is just like looking back, you know, to where I was like kind of interacting with myself almost like looking back and trying to get back into that place of feeling like what, how did I feel when I had my first break when I was 17? And I have specific memories from that like, hospital visit, how my family handled it, what I thought, you know, returning to school after I was out of the hospital, all of that stuff. And I mean, if that's, as I said, 20 years ago. So if I think about that versus now, it's like, you know, it's, it's a huge difference. But if I think about where I was when I was, you know, 20 years old or 22 years old versus when I was 17, you have these like increments that you look back, then um, it's just much easier to kind of give yourself credit for, for what you've done and, and where you've come from. I don't know if you've ever seen that that infographic that has like, there's like a little stick figure who's climbing a mountain and it's like, he's really, really tired. And then there's a zoomed out version. It's like, I can't go on anymore. How am I going to do this? And there's a zoomed out version. And that little piece of summit that they're trying to get to is like one little ridge on a much bigger mountain range. And you sort of look back to how how far you've already climbed. 
maybe that will help you or some people. I don't know, but I, I, I see it that way. Like you, if you take it in increments, it's much easier to see the progress and it's much easier to kind of like give yourself credit for where you are because there's always some version of yourself that you, that you can become more comfortable with. And, and none of us is really there yet, except for maybe some like, very enlightened people, but we're on that path. You know, I think you need to, it's like, celebrating small victories and stuff like that you gotta give yourself credit where it's due i think that's something a lot of people struggle with to be honest any sort of feeling proud of themselves or celebrating anything that they've done because people are very self-critical in my experience so to have been able to you know rise above that is is fairly impressive Uh, well i mean it's not I wouldn't say that I'm on the other side of that chasm either (laughs) still plenty of plenty of time to silence that inner voice yeah so in your journey, I hate the word journey, why am I saying the word journey? Um, so did you find um, what you call more traditional mental health care helpful at all then? Or has it literally just been this self-acceptance, looking at yourself, learning your own triggers that's helped you more than anything else? You know, I got to that place through that other system. So, so I mean, now I, I have medication if I need it. I have an antipsychotic medication if I need it, which means for me, like if I'm my mind is racing super late at night and I don't feel tired. I'm kind of like in a sort of manic episode, so to speak. That could boil over into psychosis. I have a, I have an antipsychotic, so I can uh, take that and it just knocks me out and I hate the side effects, but at least I know like I sleep and I can kind of get back onto a, a routine. But I was on medication for many years. Prior, like I came off it like four or five years ago. And before that, I was on it for like 15 years or something. So it was, I don't think it was or is right for me. Basically, where I come on, down on this is like, people should do what works for them. So if you if you feel like you're depressed or you have, an, you have uncontrollable anxiety and you take a medication for one of those things and it helps, then that's fine. I don't think that they're things that people should rely on. And I think that after some amount of time, I don't know what it is, but um, you know, these are like short-term fixes, basically. They're things that help you, they're tools that help you get to a place where you can think about the deeper stuff. But nobody's really depressed, I don't think. Yeah, I would, you know, you let's put it this way. Everybody has to interact within, within an environment. And that environment has absolutely a role to play on, on how you feel about yourself and that's not to say there are no biological causes of depression or anxiety, but it is definitely to say that you can't only focus on whatever those causes. We certainly don't know what they are and you can't focus on them only anyway, because you're interacting with, you know, other people, with your environment, you have a certain amount of money that you have to spend or you don't, you have your responsibilities of, you know, as a, as a partner, as a parent or as a brother or sister or a friend or a child, as a student or a professional, right? Like everybody has this this kind of complex life that they're leading. So I think it's really important to understand how that environment influences your mental health. And I think that traditional mental health care doesn't place enough emphasis on that interaction, on the sort of complexity. Like they say the biopsychosocial model, which is supposed to account for that integration and that interaction. But, but you know, it's hard. You, you have to find the right people whether it's professionals or not, who, who can help you kind of navigate through that, that complexity. But I think another part of your, like another way to think about your question is like, what is the, what is an alternative system? Like, what does an alternative system look like if we don't have, you know, if what we have isn't really working? And I, and I do think it's like more community based stuff. It's just, it's a lot of it is about like stigma, right? People talked about their emotions 
earlier, then there would be less of this kind of buildup that leads to something like for me, that's kind of led to this explosion. A lot of it is about trauma. Like there's a lot of things that people don't talk about that are very, very traumatic. And they, you know, if it happens, especially on a young age, they just think that this is what it's, what is normal. We all think that our existence as children is a normal existence, but there's a lot of uh, emotional, physical, sexual abuse that happens, which, which leaves traces down the road. And so I think there, I think there would need to be a system that allows for the sort of, as I said, like the earlier intervention and the prevention side of things, but also that intervention being like very precise to, to the, to the person who you're working with. That, that is, that is a hard thing to, 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 to realize, to envision and to realize. I think what all of us can do is just recognize that we don't know what, what everybody's up to. And I think people who have mental ill health understand this better, right? Like we, we all have stories and we all have like very intimate details of our lives, which are, which we don't really talk about most days. And that's the case for anybody, no matter what their experience is. So the more sort of benefit that we can give to other people, um, the more kindness and empathy we can exude, I think the better. Have you, um, have you heard of the Trieste model from Italy? No, I haven't. So I'll probably get a lot of this wrong. I'm not even entirely sure if it's pronounced Trieste, but I think it is. But basically, it's a more community-based model. I think, if I remember correctly, they've basically removed hospitals entirely. They don't really feel that they need them anymore. And um, essentially, it sort of promotes things like family involvement and improved living conditions. And they've got like walk-in centres you can go to whenever you have any sort of problems. And but yeah, basically, it's a more, more, much more community-based sort of system. There's also uh, Heal, which is a town where people with mental illnesses are essentially fostered by families and they get given care in exchange for sort of odd jobs around the house and working on farms and stuff. I mean, they're not perfect. Um, the Heal one particularly has had abuses, I think. But there are definitely other models out there. And I think you're right. We do need to look more holistically at things because sometimes medication, which in my, you know, personally, I've, it's changed my life. Medication is pretty brilliant for me, but it's not for everyone. It shouldn't be used in isolation, in my mind, and definitely shouldn't be used as some sort of like quick fix, as it often is. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, and I mean, it is getting more traction as a philosophy, like this concept of more holistic care and preventive care and community-based care. The or organization that I work for, Origin, started something called Headspace uh, twenty some years ago, which is not that meditation app, but it's actually kind of like a I was going uh, <laughs> yeah. A group of um, of brick and mortar centers, like like community centers that young people can come into for free and get. Um, they can have peer support. They can have some of them have sort of volunteer counselors. Some of them have professional counselors, and ostensibly, at least there's a there's a link, but you know, to to refer people who have more severe need to a to kind of the the the, the health system. And that that type of model has been replicated in a bunch of different places according to their cultural context and health system context is stuff in the US they're trying to to make that make that happen but a number of countries in Europe um, have taken that on board and also in Hong Kong there's a there's a huge grant to to do what they're it's calling um, level nines and it's the same kind of same kind of concept but this yeah I mean I mean actually following you guys on Twitter and seeing the kind of community that has goes online that has been going on online, um, that also can be super helpful, right? And it's just, it's nice to see that, yeah, like even in that space, people sometimes feel like they can, they can find some community, they can open up a little bit more, 
Um, I, I like, I am on Twitter a lot, but I don't post a ton. So there's, for me, it's like, it's, it's a good place to know sort of what's going on and just seeing like how much more, uh, openness there is around mental ill health is, um, is definitely huge as well. So I think we're kind of trending in the right direction. The challenge is always like systemically, right? Like there's a whole industry of, well, there's, there's the psychiatric drug industry, but there's also the profession of psychiatry which is a very different type of like science and medicine than a, 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 prof- a scientific profession where things are more known, right? Like we're still learning so much about, about the brain, but also about like how, like the, what do they call it? The gut um, brain axis, right? The like how, how your how the microbiome affects what your mood looks like. Um, and then of course the plasticity of the brain, which changes over time. Like there's just so much we don't know that's exciting about understanding the way that our body and our brain works that has to do with our mental health. But then if you become a psychiatrist, you're, you're trained in a way that's like, this is what these causes probably are or might be. And this is like, this is the tool that you have available you to you to, to uh, address them, which is medication, which is like taking a, a hammer to a very small nail. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you, by the way, I should say, like, I'm not anti-medication. I think it does help a lot of people and I'm not, I should, I don't want to stigmatize it. And um, so I don't mean to say it like that. I, I just think it's incomplete. I think that if the psychiatrists just admitted that they don't know everything, it would help. Yeah, um. it would help. <laughs> Doctors aren't so good at that sometimes. <laughs> no, no, they're not. No, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot we need to learn and it is fascinating. It really is fascinating. But it's definitely yeah. incomplete. And making it sound like we do know what's going on and that there's definitely a fix or a cure or whatever is just it's yeah. bad practice in my mind. It is. And I mean we're seeing this sorry, I'm gonna go in a little bit different direction here again, but we're we're seeing it like all over again with the popularity of psychedelics that's that's increasing, right? And uh MDMA and and psilocybin which are things that have been psilocybin, you know, is a natural thing. It's been around for thousands of years and people have been using it for thousands of years. And it's just, it's like, personally, I'm, I'm excited that there's less stigma attached to these things. I'm excited that there's more research that's being done about it, but it is being touted and marketed as these, as these panaceas that are just like, it's not going to work like in and of itself, you know, it's going to work for a certain number of people in specific settings for a specific amount of time with specific cases. And it might be much more effective than any other uh, medication that has been developed to date. But there's also a lot of issues. Uh, there's a lot of potential for abuse. Um, it's not a, these are not a, addictive substances, but um, in terms of like the, the integrative therapy that you would need to make sense of what would be like a sort of psychedelic trip. Um, is a really important component to it, like integrating whatever that experience is with what your what your life is and how you're thinking about things. And to do that well, you need somebody who's who you trust who will walk through that journey with you. And there's just going to be people who abuse that spot, like you're in a position of power, sort of to um, you know to try to help somebody through that at a at, in a time when they become when they're they're much more vulnerable because of this the substance that they've taken. So anyway, I. I just mentioned that because I totally agree with you. There's not this, there's not any of these things that can be uh, a silver bullet or a one size fits all. And as, as much as I like support this kind of 
movement toward uh, accepting psychedelics as a, as a potential treatment, which I do. Uh, I'm I'm also skeptical of like how people will use it. It's gonna be it's gonna be capitalized on. It's gonna be marketed. You know, um, yeah, it's gonna be an interesting thing to to witness for sure. I remember a few years ago they were looking into using. I think it was for PTSD. They were looking into using LSD um, with therapies alongside it. And if I remember correctly, part of the reason that that sort of its funding started to fizzle out was concerns about essentially abuse. So I think it's a legitimate concern. Yeah, yeah. And it, it probably won't be in the same, like the drugs themselves probably won't be abused, I would guess. But the the way that they're distributed, how they're marketed, who yeah. how they're paid for, whatever, it's all going to be, it's all going to, I mean... Yeah, let's just hope it's not like a capitalist-dominated industry. But uh, I mean, what? How else is it going to happen? Right? It's going to happen that way. <laughs> but yes, I mean, I think the the, the results are very promising for um, PTSD, for for those with terminal illness, especially like addiction and depression. Um, very promising results so far. Yeah, I mean, it's going to become down to how it's, especially, um, <laughs> I hate to say it, but especially in America, because. My understanding in America is that you basically, well, not you because you don't live there anymore, but did. Um, there's like literally adverts for medication like on the TV. And people will just go to the doctor and say, I want this medication. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I've heard. That doesn't happen here. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, you can advertise directly to the public. They can't, you can't, you need stuff with a prescription. But there's a whole, I mean, it's all really enmeshed. It's very, I could even say the word corrupt, like it, the you know, the doctors, the pharmaceutical companies have lobbyists who go to doctor's offices and try to sell these new drugs. And then they, they're incentivized. The doctors are incentivized to prescribe these drugs by, and sometimes they're incentivized like super overtly by like getting paid to come speak at conferences or go on vacations. And I don't know about vacations, but they're, you know, the pharma companies will bankroll these, these sorts of things. And then in the meantime, yeah, you're watching TV and there's a, there's a commercial that says, you know, are you feeling upset? Try this new drug. And then it's like, I don't know, five or 10 seconds about the drug and 20 seconds of side effects may include blah, blah, blah. We're not responsible for blah, blah, blah. It's just, it's just really, it's like not about making people better, right? It's about, like, it's about making more money. <laughs> so well, that sounds properly dodgy. Also, I think we've circled back around to, to capitalism. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's. I mean, maybe it's because I'm because uh, I've grown up in Britain, so we don't have that. But that just sounds properly dodgy to me. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. It's uh, it's just how it happens. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I haven't lived in the U.S. for a long time, so I don't. I'm not up to date with the regulations on all this stuff. But it was very common to be like, yeah, watching sports on TV, and then in the commercials, there's a lot of these. It's not just uh, psychiatric drugs, right? Like drugs for anything, for diabetes, for cholesterol, for anything. Yeah, that just sounds weird to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also explains a lot about how um, an awful lot of Americans act around the concept of medication and big pharma and stuff. Yeah, a lot, a lot is making sense now. <laughs> yeah, well, you're definitely, you're definitely inundated with it um, from a young age. Yeah. Yeah, that can't be good for your mental health either, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. We've gone massively off on a tangent here, and I can't remember what we were talking about before we went off onto a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We we had a, I mean, I was thinking about it because we had the whole kind of pre-session thing about 
uh, self-acceptance and, and what that means in that journey. And, and as you said, you know, a lot of people are struggling with that piece of things. And I guess, I mean, yeah, there's, there, there's a difference between like this, the voice inside, like, I think all of us are maybe not all of us, but, but many of us are, are our own harshest critics, right? Like, oh, I could have done this better or whatever. And the sort of external things that we get from other people are often less intense than the criticisms that we levy on ourselves. But I also think that um, there's this sort of there's a sort of like difference or the healthy kind of threshold where that happens. Like, the, you know, you don't you also don't want to be somebody who just who is not critical, right? Is not like critical of the world or critical of yourself. Um, and I mean, critical without connotation, just somebody who considers themselves, somebody who considers what's happening in the world and why. Um, so I guess the, the question is, where do you, where is that line? Like, where do you find, when does it become like too much criticism when this kind of healthy curiosity about yourself in the world bleeds over into, into doubt, into uh, sort of malevolent feelings toward yourself and into s- things that can be really harmful over time. And that, I guess, is kind of where each of us has to figure out that that line. Um, and that, I think, you know, takes some work and, and it takes practice to, to, to keep to that line. Because um, it's very easy to, to feel like you're shit, you know. <laughs> it's much, much harder to, like, when you're feeling terrible, it's much harder to... Um, to convince yourself that things aren't so bad and you know you're you're doing okay and that's where all that stuff about considering where you were many years ago to right now and where you might be in the future and the, the sense of hope that you can kind of engender in yourself that's where all that comes in yeah I, 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 that line's gonna be different for every person yeah. but yeah i think you're right it, it is all about being able to see where you were where you are now because apart from anything else that can add hope in your mind that you can continue on that trajectory and things will right. improve in the future. Easier, right. Easy to say, isn't it? It's hard to do. <laughs> it is. And I think it's important also to say that that is definitely not a linear progression. Like you can oh, pick a yeah. moment. I could pick a moment, you know, five years ago when I felt a lot better than I did now, or I can pick a moment uh, when I'm feeling really down uh, where I felt better in the past. Right. But you, you, you have to kind of ride those waves. But if you look at it kind of, yeah, from a zoomed out view, that's where you see the sort of improvement. But yeah, we just need to be sure that we get that message across, which is none of this is linear. And so you have to be patient with yourself as you kind of go through those, ride those waves up and down. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, if you will put it on a graph and you zoom right out, the trend line should hopefully, hopefully <laughs> be going upwards. Yeah. And there's always time to, if it's not, like there's always time to to make it such, right? I mean, that's... uh it's another piece of things. Like, I don't know, I guess just if anybody's listening and it feels like the trend line is going down or you're at your worst or it can only get worse, like it can get better. It can turn around. And that, I mean, yeah, you say this, you hear this all the time, especially about depressions, like it will get better. It will pass. Well, you know, you, there is hope for tomorrow. And um, just we'll repeat that message. Like it's, it's always worth it, right? It's always worth it to, to go another day, to take another step. Um, because it does, it does turn around. And I have certainly been at that place where, because the, the psychotic breaks are, for me, have been, yeah, like a, a very different sort of, sort of sense of reality. 
and have been very scary at sometimes. They've also been quite um, transcendent for me at, at sometimes. Um, some very like very transcendent sort of spiritual experiences within that. But there have also been like very deep troughs of uh, hopelessness and depression and um, suicidality and things like that. And so um, I do know what that's like and what it feels like, you know, to, to feel like it's never going to get better and everything is hopeless and everything is worthless. And I just, I mean, it, yeah, you, you, whatever that motivation is to take that next step and, and, and get through that next day or that next even 15 minutes. I remember there was a time when it was like, get through 15 minutes, then get through 15 more minutes, right? Whatever that motivation is, is worth it because, um, yeah, that, that can change and that trend line can reverse and start to, start to look up for sure. There'll be people right now shouting at the podcast because be, cause people, you know, people always get a little bit annoyed about the positive, uh, about that message of things will get better. But yeah. coming from someone who has been there, who has, you know, been at the, the, the bottom end, I think that will mean something more to people who are listening than being lectured at by someone who's never experienced that. Yeah, I hope so. And look, I mean, I, I, yeah, I work, I, I'm part of an organization called the Stability Network, which is a, a storytelling organization. People who have experiences of mental ill health and they, uh, they get trained on how to kind of tell their stories in a way that helps to get, you know, messages out of, of hope and you can actually thrive with a mental health condition and all this stuff. And it's great. Um, but there have been some, there's like this, this kind of debate. There's this rule that we don't always follow, but, but we do sometimes follow. It's called the 80-20 rule. It's basically like 80% positive and 20% of how bad stuff was. And I remember thinking like, it's, it, it depends on your audience, depends on what you're doing, et cetera. But it's just, it's just not accurate right? <laughs> to say like, okay, well, 20% of my experience was, especially when that, like that shitty part of the experience is so powerful, right? It feels like you're not giving it credence or you're not being truthful about it. If you're, if you're only giving it 20% or if you're not like really getting in the weeds of what that depression felt like, for example. Um, and so I, and, and there's another also um, part of me, which, which understands that commiserating in that place, right? If, if you see somebody like really communicate how bad it is, that can be a, a a really validating, important thing, right? It's not like you need to hear this message of positivity. Rather, you need you need somebody you need, or I don't, who knows what you need, but you you feel some sort of um, connection, right? If somebody has really articulated how bad it can be, and I think that's really important too. So I don't, I'm not, I don't know, I don't have any evidence for this, but I feel like there are people who are just more inclined to be more optimistic and positive, And there are people who um, are not and are more inclined to sort of commiserate with how, how bad things can be. And I don't think that that's necessarily a, like a bad thing that that's difference exists. So they're both true. It really sucks to be there. It really, really sucks to be there. And it's true that uh, it's worth taking the next step because um, things can turn around. Those are, those are both true. Yeah, yeah, they're not mutually they're not mutually exclusive. I think sometimes maybe we hear too much of the positive and not enough of the negative. Yeah, it needs to be a balance. Especially because, like you, for sure. I mean, your your, your co-host, um, Life and Unreality. She talks about like how we need more stories of 
like normal people instead of like these celebrities who overcame their one bout of depression and now they've put out 16 albums or you know this guy is now a politician or this person runs a company or whatever like it's that's great you know but the vast majority of us are not gonna do those things <laughs> like return to work or have our families or whatever it is that you know we want and um and that's really important too it's like recovery and, and thriving so to speak is about doing what you what makes sense for you in your life it's not about like winning life <laughs> yeah yeah the, the shopping list of life doesn't really matter does it really when when you've got a mental illness no. <laughs> your shopping list changes <laughs> Yeah. And just, I mean, at the end of anybody's day, like you're not going to feel consistent fulfillment unless you have, um, you know, these very human things, right? Like your, your self-love and your connection to other people. And it's not about your followers or your, how much money you have in your bank or anything like that. No, I completely agree. Yeah. Um, to be perfectly honest, I could talk to you for ages. It's been very interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I've enjoyed this. But we, we are, we're, yeah, we're getting up there, huh, with time. Yeah, I'm concerned the listeners will be getting bored. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not, but maybe so. Sorry about that, <laughs> listeners. Well, thank you very much for being on. Um, I am wanting to do a theme episode about sort of self-acceptance and stuff, and it would be brilliant to have you on again on that one if I could find another guest. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. But yeah, been really, really interesting speaking to you. Thank you very much for being on. And um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I'm really happy that you guys are doing what you're doing. It's really important. So happy to support. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reality Tourist Podcast. To find out more about the project, or maybe to get involved by writing a blog or being a guest on the show, please look us up on Twitter, at Reality Tourists. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>